The following message is brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church and Pastor Joshua Ermler. We embark on a brand new series entitled The Story of Ruth, where we are going to go verse by verse through the book of the Bible entitled Ruth. Uh, Many of you might know that there are two books in the Bible that are specifically named after women. Uh, This one, the book of Ruth, and of course the second is Esther. And over the next six weeks during the fall season, we're going to go verse by verse studying this book of the Bible. Uh, We thought it would be interesting to have a little fun, and throughout this series, we're going to have different ladies from the church read our scripture passages, and we thought that would be interesting as we kind of march through this book together as a church family. Uh, As we begin, let me ask you a question. Have you you ever found yourself in a situation where an entire room of people were laughing at you? (laughs) Have you ever found yourself in a situation like this? Uh, And I'm not just saying laughing with you, that's one thing, but literally laughing at you. Um, One of the most embarrassing experiences that I ever had uh, happen to me as a teenager took place when I was 16 years old. Uh, When I was 16, my mom decided that I should take Uh, voice lessons. And for about a year, I went, and every week I would meet with a lady in Clovis, and I had voice lessons to teach me how to sing. Now, I don't know if it was just that my mom was getting tired of listening to me as we stood together in church. I'm not sure quite what was going on, but she signed me up for voice lessons, and for about a year I'm taking these voice lessons. And then one day, uh, our youth group decided to head to Clovis for a youth rally. A bunch of different churches were all going to get together, and there was going to be a big youth rally, and so I headed over there with a bunch of my friends. When I got there, I realized that my voice teacher was also there, and she comes running up to me, and she said, hey, there's going to be a student led choir that's going to open up the rally, and uh, I know we've been working on your voice. She said, uh, would you mind jumping up there with them to sing? Now, I hadn't been practicing with them. She, she named the name of the song, and she said, hey, so do you, do you know that song? Now, if I were to be completely honest, I, I didn't really know the song all that well, but of course, being a proud, arrogant teenage boy, I said, yeah, of course I know that song. Huh? You know, that, that'd, be, that'd be fine. She said, okay, I want you to stand up there, and you're going to sing it. When the choir gets up, I want you to sing with them. Now, some of you know I was a little bit shorter at the time, so they literally placed me at, at the very front of this choir in the center. So here I am. I'm up there in the center, in the front, tall people in the back, short guys in the front, and we're standing there, and I'm just singing. We're having a good old time. And about halfway through the song, I begin to look out, and I notice that there are people are kind of snickering. They're laughing a little bit. I look over here, and they're kind of giggling, and I look over there, kind of giggling, laughing. And as the song's going on, further and further, more and more, people are elbowing, kind of pointing, laughing. And by the end of the song, basically everybody out there is just kind of just trying to hold in all their laughs. And I'm thinking, what's going on? We, we finish the song, and I get down, and I go back to where my friend was. I sat down, and I, I leaned over, and I whispered to him. I said, I said what was so funny? He looks at me and he says, he says, you were. I was like, what did I do? He says, you were singing all the wrong words of the song and you were doing it so confidently. (laughs) And sure enough, I just thought I knew the words of the song and I'm up there and I'm singing to the top of my lungs and somehow I was singing the wrong words and I didn't even realize it. And I remember being so embarrassed. There's a couple hundred teenagers there. My mom picked me up. I'm driving home and I told her, I don't think I can show my face in Clovis again, mom. This is, this is embarrassing, you know? And when you're a 16, 17 year old, you realize, you know, life doesn't get much worse than that. And, and, and we've all had times where we've 
We've messed something up pretty bad, haven't we? Have you ever, how many of you, you know, have had a time where you mess something up pretty bad, all right? And uh, in fact, turn to the person sitting next to you and says, there's been times where you mess something up bad, all right? And uh, remind them of that reality, all right? And uh, then the other person looked back at them and said, you too, you know? <laughs> and uh, here, here's the point. The point is simply this. We've all had times where we've messed something up. And that kind of leads us to our theme for the Bible series, which is this. The theme for this entire sermon series, all of these messages, is simply this. God is able to fix and redeem broken things. That's our theme. God is able to fix and redeem, we're going to focus on that word in a little bit, broken things. So here's the question I want you to think about. As we dive into our Bible study this morning, this is the question I want you to ponder this morning. What is it that might be ruined or broken in your life that you need God to fix? That's a question. What is it in your life that's ruined or broken that you need God to fix? This morning, we're going to look at several aspects of brokenness and ruin found in the scriptures that were just read a moment ago, okay? So if you are a guest with us here this morning, on your way in, you should have received a little program guide. Uh, On the inside, there is a connection card. I want to encourage you to fill that out at some point during the service. Uh, Later on, you'll have the opportunity to turn that in over at the welcome tent. We even have a little gift for you. Um, But for the rest of us, I hope that we'll pull out our notes, we'll open up our Bibles, and we're going to take the opportunity to dive right in. Now, uh, since we already read the passage, without any further ado, let's just get right to it. We're going to start in verse number one with our Bible study today. Here's what the Bible says, Ruth chapter number one, verse number one. I want you to notice this. As it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. This leads us to our first thought this morning, and that is this. I want you to notice, if you're taking notes, the famine in the ruin. The famine in the ruin. Uh, The word famine simply means no food. So here were these individuals. They find themselves in a place where there's no food. They couldn't buy food. They didn't have food in their cupboards. There was no food in the kitchen. Uh, This whole area was without food. And, and in this day and age, to, to be going through a famine was, was a little bit like a death sentence. I mean, if you, you didn't have food, it wasn't like that grocery stores and Costco's. I mean, it, it, was, a, it, was, a, it was a dire thing when, when, you, when, when, famine, when famine hit. And I want you to notice a few things about this particular famine that we see here in this passage. I want you to see, first of all, it says that, it says, now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. When, when did this take place? When did this famine take place? First of all, I want you to see it was during the time of the judges. It was during the time of the judges. What does that tell us? So the time of the judges was a 400 Uh, year period after Israel had entered the promised land uh, under Joshua's leadership and and before there were any kings in Israel. There was actually a time when they when the children of Israel and all the Jews went to this promised land, the land that God said was theirs, but there was about 400 years before there were actually kings that were leading this country. And so for 400 years they had these judges that were kind of like pseudo rulers, but it was a very interesting time. It took place uh, roughly about 1500 BC to 1100 BC. And so that's kind of the time frame in which this place, uh, this, um, this story takes place. And, and I want you to notice, it says it was in the time when the judges ruled. Now, what does that tell us about what's going on here? 
Now, if you'll, in fact, in my Bible, it's actually on the same page. If you go to the last verse in the book of Judges, we get a little bit of an insight on what's taking place during the time of the Judges. Verse 25 of the last chapter of Judges, chapter 21, here's what the Bible says. It says, in those days, the days of the Judges, there was no king in Israel. Notice this. And every man did that which was right in his own eyes. So you say, what's going on here? When this story takes place, this story of Ruth, it was a famine in the land, but what is happening culturally in this day and age is it's the time of the judges and everybody is doing whatever it is that they want. They're living any way they want. They're doing whatever they want to do. It's just absolute chaos. It's absolute mayhem taking place. Everybody's their own judge. Everybody's their own ruler. Everybody's doing their own thing. And, and how many of you say that, that kind of sounds a little bit familiar? It kind of sounds a little bit like today. I mean, e even in this day and age, there's a lot of talk about, you know, being independent and, and living your own life. And if it feels good, just do it. But I want to remind you today that independence, independence isn't doing your own thing. It's actually doing the right thing, even if that means doing it on your own. That's the spirit of godly independence. And and yet here in this day and age, when this story takes place, the Jewish people, the Moabites, everybody's just doing their own thing. If it feels good, they're just doing it. No regards to authority. It's just like, man, if it makes sense in my mind, then I'm, then I'm going for it. Uh, Proverbs chapter number 21, verse 20 says it this way. It says, every man, every man, every way of man is right in his own eyes. Notice this. But the Lord pondereth the hearts. God wants to see what the motivations are. God wants to see why you're doing what you're doing. Because every, everybody would say, yeah, what I'm doing is right. What I'm doing is good. What, my way is the best way. And yet we see here this, this story of Ruth takes place when, when, when everybody's just doing their own thing. It's, it's, like, a, it's like a free, it's a free for all. But not only do we see the, the, that it was during the time of the judges, what, what else do we know about this famine? What else do we know about the story of Ruth? It, it took place, it started in a city called Bethlehem. That's what it says here in verse number one. It says there was a famine and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah. All right, so we know this is in Bethlehem. Uh, how many of you uh, are familiar with Bethlehem? Did something else happen in Bethlehem? Was there maybe a story that took place? What happened? Oh yeah, all right, you know, most of us are familiar. That's where, that's where the Messiah was born. That's where Jesus was born in this city called Bethlehem. There's a little map up here. You can kind of get an idea on the far left upper corner. You can see where there's Jerusalem and, and Bethlehem there in Judah. And so we get an idea of where Bethlehem is in this context. The, the word Bethlehem, the name Bethlehem, it, it literally means house of bread. That's, that's what Bethlehem means. It means house of bread. Uh, so I, as I was studying this, I thought, that's a little ironic. Here they're in Bethlehem, this place called a house of bread, and there's what? There's no bread. <laughs> there's nothing to eat. Uh, that would kind of be like saying today, you know, and God's people all starved at Winco. <laughs> It just doesn't make sense. Like, what, what's going on here? That, that's what's taking place. It's just Bethlehem's supposed to be this house of bread, and yet there's absolutely no bread there anywhere. It means house of bread. Now, later on, we'll read about an area called Moab. So you'll see Moab down on the far, uh, down kind of to the right of that map on the other side of the Dead Sea. Uh, I, wanna, I want you to see this because in a moment we're going to talk about this. 
depending on which way someone would travel, whether they went north over the Dead Sea or south uh, to Moab, it's somewhere between a 30 to 50 mile journey, all right, for them to get to Moab. And so we see here kind of the context in which they found themselves in. This took place during the time of the judges. Uh, This story starts in Bethlehem. And the other thing I want you to notice about this famine, it's actually one of 13 famines that are mentioned in the scripture. 13 times the Bible records a famine taking place uh, among the children of Israel. There's no bread, there's no food, nothing to eat in the cupboards, nothing to eat in the kitchen. 13 times this takes place. Now, within a biblical context, we might want to ask ourselves, why did these famines take place? Leviticus chapter number 26 verses 3 and 4 give us some insight as to why this famine might have been taking place. Here's what the Bible says in Leviticus chapter number 26. It says, God's saying to his people, the children of Israel, the Jewish people, he says, if, if you walk in my statutes, if you you obey my laws and observe my commandments, and then he says, and and you do them, all right? This is uh, Leviticus uh, 26. It says here, then, if if you obey, then, Will I give your rains in their seasons, and the land shall yield its increase. So God's saying, hey, if you obey me, I'll make it rain. There'll be plenty of harvest, and you will have bread to eat. But he says the assumption is if you don't, then famines may come. I want us to pause for a moment. Not every bad thing that happens in our lives is a result of something we've done wrong. Okay, let's just, let's just start there. How many of you recognize there are bad things that sometimes happen to good people? Okay, we, we understand that. However, a wise believer, a wise Christian will step back and ask themselves prayerfully and humbly. They'll ask themselves, is this thing that I'm going through, is this trouble that I'm experiencing, is this self-induced? Have I brought this upon myself, especially if you find yourself running up against something again and again and again and again, a wise believer might step back and they might go to godly counselors, they might go to the scriptures, they might say, oh God, search me, know me, try my heart, and and ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, is the reason I keep running into the same thing over and over and over and over again, is it because of something maybe that I have done wrong? And a wise Christian is going to begin to think that way. Because not all bad things are a result of sin, but the reality is there are consequences to sin. And sometimes when bad things are happening over and over, sometimes we, we need to look at ourselves and say, am I making a bad decision over and over and over again? And so the first thing we see here is this famine. This famine in all of this ruin. So that was verse 1. Let's move to verse 2. Notice what the Bible says in, in verse number 2 here. It says, And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab. So there's this famine. Here's this man we meet. Uh, his name here, it says, it says, And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. <laughs> How many of you found that in the baby books as you were looking to name your children? That's not, not a common one that comes up here, all right? And it says, it says of Bethlehem, Judah, and they came into the country of Moab and continued there. Now, as we saw on the map a moment ago, Moab would have been about 30 to 50 miles away from Bethlehem. Bethlehem was the house of bread. 
It was in Judah where the spirit and presence of God resided in that disposition, in that dispensation. It was in that place where the uh, temple existed. It's in that place where the synagogues, that's the place where God's people were. And yet it says that this man, he went 30 to 50 miles away and he went to Moab to live among the Moabites. Now, what do we know about the Moabites? The Moabites came from a man named Lot. How many of you have ever heard that Bible name before, Lot? All right, some of you, if you grew up in church, you know that name, Lot. Lot was the one who went to Sodom and Gomorrah to live among those people. We've all kind of heard of Sodom and Gomorrah. It was this place of a lot of wickedness and sin. And there was this believer, this nephew of Abraham who said, oh, I think I want to go there. And so he took his family there and he, he paid a horrible price. In fact, his, his, I like to say it this way, Lot, one way you remember this is Lot, Lot had a lot of problems, all right? Let's just, let's just put it that way for a moment. Um, at one point, he actually impregnated his daughter, all right? It wasn't his finest moment. Literally, he commits incest with her, and his, his line, his lineage becomes these Moabite people, all right? And so this is where the Moabites come from. Uh, these people worship pagan gods, specifically the demon god Chemosh, and so these were demon worshipers. Uh, we, these are like Satanists. These are, these are the Moabite people here we see in this passage. And, and in Deuteronomy chapter number 7, God tells his chosen people, he tells the Jewish people, he says to them, hey, listen up, guys. He says, he says I, don't, I, don't want you, I don't want you to marry those Moabite people. He says, you're my people. They don't worship the true and living God. They worship demons, all right? They, they're satanic. Don't worry, they're pagans. Don't, don't marry them. And he goes on, he says, I, I really don't even want you associating with them. I don't want you to be among them. They're just, they've made choices that are not healthy. They're not wise. You need to stay where the presence of God is, stay with God's people, but be careful of associating with those Moabite people. All right, so this is a little of the context, and, and that context then leads us here to our next thought. Not only do we see the famine in the ruin, I want you to see, second of all, the failure, the failure in the ruin. You say, what failures? We see a couple of them here in these couple verses. Uh, first of all, we see Elimelech's failure. Elimelech's uh, name, if you were to research his name, what does Elimelech mean? What's his name mean? Elimelech's name means, God is my king. It means God's my ruler. And, and yet as we study his life, he's, he's not really living like it. He's not really living like God's his king. You see, even though God had told the Jewish people not to associate with these Moabites, that's exactly what Elimelech chooses to do. He, he literally uproots his family. He, he takes his family from a place where they're rooted and they're thriving. They're connected with God's people. They're, they're experiencing God's presence. And, and this guy Elimelech's like, oh, we don't have any food to eat. I, I'm not really. And, and so he starts looking around. And so he literally uproots him and his two sons. And he moves to Moab. And we see this failure here. The Bible goes on to say that he really, he goes, he takes them, and, and they're going to actually end up being there for 10 years. And here's what's interesting about Elimelech. While Elimelech was focus, focusing on providing for his family uh, financially, while he was focused on providing for them physically, he wasn't taking any thought of providing for them spiritually. And so for just a moment, I want to speak to the men in this room. If you're a dad, if you're a father, if you're a husband, 
It's a, it's a wonderful thing that you are willing to provide for your family and provide for your children and make sure there's food on the table. That's a part of your responsibility as a father. It's a, it's a part of your responsibility as a man biblically. But I want to say this, according to the word of God, you have other responsibilities too. It's not just to put food on the table. It's not just to provide financially. You have a responsibility to provide spiritually for your family as well to provide them with godly community for your kids and your spouse, to make sure that your family is under solid Bible teaching regularly, to to make sure they're in an environment where they have lots of healthy spiritual mentors in their life. And I'm talking to the men for just a moment because according to the word of God, while this is not very popular, it's still a reality. We have a responsibility, men, to lead to provide. We have a responsibility not just to provide physically, but to provide spiritually for our families and for our children, to provide them an example, to provide them a model that they can look to and say, yes, that's what I want my life to be like. Man, it's, biblically speaking, it's our responsibility to lead our families, to lead them humbly, to lead them sacrificially, to lead them generously. I'm not talking about bullying our families. Okay, I've met some men. I'm just leading my family. No, you're being a bully. (laughs) There's a fine line between bullying your kids and, and being a model, being an example. I'm not talking about bullying them. I'm not talking about bossing them around. I'm saying living a life that is an example that your kids can follow after and your spouse can follow after and your family can follow after the type of testimony that will leave a, a godly legacy for those behind you. And, and men, specifically, I, I'm, I'm focusing on us today for just a moment. It's okay. It's okay if you, if you, have, a, if you have a church that will come alongside and help you lead. But ultimately, it's your responsibility. And it's great if you maybe are able to have a school that teaches some morals and some good values, and it's a wonderful thing if you have a school that'll come along and help, but I want to say this, ultimately it's your responsibility. And it's a great thing, you know, if you have, you know, some other godly families that'll come alongside and maybe some parents or grandparents that'll come alongside and and help you lead and help you kind of model these things, but ultimately, man, it's your responsibility to provide, to be a mentor and a model, an example to your, it's your responsibility. It's a great thing if you have some pastors, some godly mentors that'll come along, but man, I want to speak to you for just a second. Ultimately, it's your responsibility to be that model. And it's a sad thing in the day and age in which we live. And I'm thankful for godly women who will lead. And I'm thankful for godly ladies, you know, that love Jesus. And they persevere in following Him. But men, where are the men that will stand up and say, you know, and I'm not just going to abdicate all this to the ladies. But I'm going to be a man of God that says, hey, I can be an example in this area. I can model these things as well. And dads who say, kids, follow me as I'm following Christ. An example. A model, not a bully, not a boss, but a model. To those of you who are here today and you're doing well in this area, I just want to encourage you. I want to thank you. A man who will just be the man of God that that God would have him to be is becoming more and more and more rare. 
I travel around sometimes and I'll preach in different churches and one of the things I begin to notice is, is, is it seems like, you know, uh, there's, there's more women go in church and, and, and familiar with spiritual things but over time the men just kind of, you know, uh, they, they kind of drift. And I, like I said, praise God for women who love Jesus and who want to lead and I'm not, I'm not saying that's not a good thing. What I am saying is, men, we have to have a part in that as well. And Elimelech, He's kind of just like this one of these quasi-Christians. Eh. He, he focused mainly on, on the physical realm. Mainly on making sure there's food on the table. So I say to those of you who have maybe found yourself leaning in to, to responding a little bit more like Elimelech. Always, you know, looking over, finding grass is greener somewhere else. I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to step up and, and not just, just think about the physical provision, but also think about what's this going to do spiritually? What's this going to do emotionally and relationally for my family? Now, Elimelech can make a lot of excuses. He had a lot of good reasons to do what he did. There's no food in Bethlehem. They've got food in Moab. There's, there's nowhere to work. There's a famine. There's no, there's no jobs. Maybe, maybe he's like, there's, I got this job down in Moab. Maybe it's like, ah, there's, there's, it's, it makes more financial sense over there because I get this and I get that and we'll, we'll have a little bit more money. And so he's only thinking about this thing from a financial perspective, but he's not thinking about it from a spiritual perspective and the impact that it's going to have on his kids. And so he's all these reasons in his own head why, wow, this is what we got to do, but he's not looking at this thing holistically. So he chooses, he chooses to move his family away from God's presence in that day and age, away from God's people, move them outside of that support structure that they have, and for 10 years, they're out of church. Give me a little, I, I, I know I'm stretching this a little bit, but they're out of God's presence in this context. I want to say this, men. My decisions and your decisions don't just affect us. They affect our kids and our grandkids. And I want you to think not just about putting food on a table. I want you to think about your legacy for a moment. Your legacy. When, when your family gathers around your casket... And your kids and your grandkids stand up to talk about you. What are they going to have to say? Well, well we, always, we always had something to eat. <laughs> or are they going to be able to speak of your legacy? Your love for Jesus. Your passion for those things that are noble and right how you poured into their lives. Elimelech, he made, a, he made an unwise decision. And it wasn't unwise because he moved. Okay, I want to set that clear. It's not wrong for him to move. What was, here's what was wrong. God had told them not to move to Moab. But that's where the money was. That's where the job was. That's where it was easier. And that's where he went. And he was doing what God had expressly 
forbidden him to do. And that's where the failure lies, which leads us to verse number four, the son's failures. The Bible says in verse four, they, these two sons, Malon and Chilion, the Bible says in verse four, they took them wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth and they dwelled there 10 years. So we see these boys' failures now. Remember what the Bible told us earlier? You know, as we were kind of reading through the Deuteronomy 7, what, what did God say? He said, hey, my children, don't marry them. And now, because of the decision the dad made, now the kids are in a position to more easily make unwise decisions themselves. And, and this is, guys, I want you to think about this. The decisions you make either make it easier or harder for your kids to then make wise decisions themselves. Can I, maybe for just a moment, all right? Maybe you're here today and you're single. Maybe you're a teenager. Uh, maybe you're a young adult, you're not married, and you're here right now. I want to speak to you guys for a second. The Bible's very clear. It wasn't just to them. It's, it, who you marry is very important, extremely important. The person you marry will have massive impact on your life, massive and the Bible's pretty clear. If you're a believer, God's calling you to marry a believer. The Bible says don't be unequally yoked. You don't want to get into a marriage covenant with somebody who does not have the same beliefs as you, with somebody who does not have the same values as you, somebody who does not see the world in the sense of, you know, all the, it's just, it's be unwise. And yet that's exactly what happens in this passage. Here are these two boys. They're like, man, it's time to get, get married. Hey, these Moabite girls look pretty. <laughs> it was easy, it's convenient, they're right here. So they marry them. Here's the point. Judah was only like 30 miles away. 30 miles, not that far, you know. It was only 30 miles. It would have taken them a couple of days to, to hike back to Judah to find somebody that God says, hey, this will be a healthy person for you to get into a relationship with. But it wasn't convenient. It was just easier to just, well, this person right here, you know, just, just marry them. And I want to speak to those of you who are single. Let's, this is something we want to be wise about. Now, if you're sitting here and you're married, <laughs> and you're like, maybe I, maybe I married the wrong person. No, you didn't, all right? You're married to exactly who God wants you to be married to, all right? <laughs> Praise God. <laughs> yeah, you're good. All right, we had one smart guy in here. <laughs> Amen. Yeah, that's right. My, my point is this, guys. Sometimes hard times hit, famines hit, difficulties hit. And it's in those seasons, if we're not careful, we'll make some unwise decisions. And that's kind of what happens in this passage. Proverbs, Proverbs chapter number 13, verse 13 says this. Whoever despises the word, the word of God, shall be destroyed. But he that feareth, he that obeyeth, he that respecteth the commandments of God shall be rewarded. Can I say it this way? Whatever God asks you to do is for your benefit, not his. It's not his, all right? 
And so we see this, this failure that takes place. This failure takes place, and I get it, right? You know, I mean, there's a famine in the land. It's a little bit difficult. It's a little bit hard. You know, I'm, what, what do you do in those situations? As some of you might know that uh, my, my, my wife, Jenny, uh, she's, she's kind of really health conscious, you know, and she's really focused on making sure you get your vegetables and nutrition. And some of, how many of you husbands, your wife is like that, always trying to get you to eat a little healthier, you know, maybe lose a little weight or whatever the case may be. I think a lot of us would find ourselves in that situation. And so she's always constantly on me, reminding me, yeah, I got to eat more healthy. And I remember on one occasion, I was uh, sitting there and I was uh, eating some ice cream. <laughs> How many of you love ice cream? You know what I'm talking about? It's just good, good. And, and so I was eating this ice cream, right? But I'm eating it right out of the carton. No reason to, no reason to waste a bowl, right? You know, I'm eating right out of that carton. I'm, I'm eating that ice cream up. Man, my wife walks in. She just looks at me, looks down at that carton of ice cream, you know. She says to me, she says, you, you're going you're gonna to eat all that ice cream? Uh, <laughs> I know. I'm looking down at the ice cream, you know, look up at her. I smiled and said, yes, because I ain't no quitter. Huh? That's just the kind of guy I am, you know. I don't know if go punch you, finish strong, you know. Committed, dedicated. Yeah, I got this. Personally, for me, I would have had a hard enough time just going without ice cream for a while. I get that it would be hard to go without food. I get, the ch- I get how difficult this must have been for Elimelech to make this wise decision. And yet in the face of that difficulty, there was some failure. But let's keep reading. Notice what the Bible says. Verse 3, it says, And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, what's the next word? You can say it with me. What is it? Died. I think about this for a moment. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. They left Bethlehem so they wouldn't die. There's no bread there. There's no food there. They left so they wouldn't die. So they leave, and then what happens? They, they died. They died anyways. All right? Which leads us to our final thought, and that's simply this. The, the fatalities, the fatalities, or we might say the funerals and the ruin. Okay? The Bible says this. The, the Bible reminds us that the Lord is good a refuge in time of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. Here's what I want to encourage you with. If you're going through a difficult season right now and you're looking at this thing and you're like, I don't know how it's all going to make sense financially and I don't know how it's all going to come together and yeah, maybe, I could, maybe if I didn't obey God in this area, maybe it would be easier financially or maybe if I didn't quite you know, do that, then it would make more sense. You know, we got all these ideas in our heads about, you know, and we're, we just kind of be like, oh, I'm not going to quite do that. And all of a sudden, if we're not careful, during these, these difficult times in our lives, we make bad decisions. But I want to remind you, that God's still there in the difficult times. He still cares for you in the difficult moments. In fact, he is your refuge even in these seasons. He's there. He's a refuge. Some of you might be familiar with a, a gentleman by the name of evangelist Billy Graham. Billy Graham wrote a book in 1975, and in it he writes about a missionary named uh, John G. Patton. Uh, John was a pioneer missionary in the New Hebrides Islands, all right? And there was this point where he felt called to take the gospel of Jesus Christ, to take the Bible to these, to these natives that lived in this remote part of the world. And there were people, pastors and other religious people who came around John and said, hey, it's, it's very dangerous. The, these people are, are very, very violent. And it might not be the best to take, to take your wife there. 
And yet he deeply felt that to bring them the gospel was exactly what God was calling him to do. And, and Mr. Patton replied, even the most dangerous place in the world can be a place of safety and rest when it is in the center of God's will. One night after they arrived, they were getting ready to go to bed when all of a sudden they heard some wrestling outside. They looked out the windows and sure enough, a bunch of, a bunch of uh, natives began to surround, surround the mission house that they were living in. They had the intent on, on literally burning the, the house down and, and killing the patents inside of it. John, not knowing what else to do, dropped to his knees, grabbed his wife, and they just started praying. They prayed for God's protection. They prayed for God's safety. In fact, all night they prayed. They prayed and they prayed. And when daylight finally came, they were amazed to see that, that the attackers were gone. Man, they thanked God for delivering them and keeping them safe in that situation. And they, the next morning, got up and just kept doing what God called them to do, to witness, to share the gospel, to preach the word. It was about a year later when the chief of the tribe was converted to Jesus Christ. He got saved, put his trust in Jesus. They developed a relationship as he taught him the Bible. And one day, John remembered that night, and he brought it up to the chief. He said, he said, I wanted to ask you, he said, what kept your men from burning down the house that one evening about a year ago and killing us? <laughs> the chief replied in surprise. He says, well, he says, we were planning on it, but then you, you sent those men out around your house to, to kind of protect. There's a whole, whole group of men that surrounded your entire place. John said, I I don't know what you're talking about. I, I didn't send any men out there. And the chief said, no, there was, there was a huge, huge group of men outside. And our men, you know, not wanting to get hurt, decided just to let you live. It was only then that Mr. Patton realized that God had literally sent his guardian angels in response to his prayer to protect them. And I want to remind you of this, that the safest place to be is in the middle of God's will. The safest place for a Limelech to have been is in the place where that famine was if it was where God had him to be. And God may ask you to do some things and you might not understand why it doesn't make financial sense and it doesn't make, you know, but if, this is, but if that's what God has, the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. I want to close with just a couple real basic thoughts, real practical thoughts as we wrap this up. If you want to jot these down in the conclusion of your notes, feel free to do this. Here's a couple statements, some things I want to encourage you with from this passage. Number one, make spiritually providing for your family a priority. Make spiritually providing for your family a priority. Yes, you have to, you have to, you have to work a job, make money, put food on the table. That's good. But are you spiritually providing for them? Are you praying with them, praying for them? Are you spiritually making sure they're, they're with God's people, with spiritual godly mentors in environments that will help cultivate their heart for the Lord? Number two, number two, next thing I see, I want to encourage you to be willing to do inconvenient things in order to obey God. Be willing to do inconvenient things in order to obey God. Can I just remind you of this? Oftentimes, obeying God is inconvenient. It's just inconvenient. I don't know how else to say it. To do what God 
says is healthy, to, to follow in those areas that God says is wise, sometimes is inconvenient. It's not easy. Like for the boys, it was inconvenient for them to travel all the way back to Judah, you know, when there was, there was women right there. It's inconvenient. Number three, recognize that the best financial decision isn't always the right decision. Now, I'm not saying, sometimes it might be. But recognize that the best financial decision isn't always the right decision. It isn't always. So we want discernment. We want wisdom. We want counsel. All right? So as we start this study in the story of Ruth, it kind of starts on a dark note, doesn't it? <laughs> starts with famine and death. And I was like, whoa, this got dark very fast. But here's what we're going to see from this book. We're going to see in the midst of this brokenness, in the midst of this pain, in the midst of this ruin, in the midst of this hurt, we're going to see where God takes all the broken pieces of this story and puts them together and fixes them together to make something absolutely beautiful out of them. In fact, not only is it going to turn out beautiful for these individuals, it continues to make an impact in our lives today through the lineage that flowed from the Ruth's life. And we're going to dive deeper into that in the upcoming weeks, and I hope that you'll commit to being a part of each one of these messages throughout this series. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church. If this message was a blessing to you, please consider leaving us a review or sharing the message on social media. Thanks once again for tuning in.